0: I'm probably glad that I retired but uh, that's another story but in any case um, I am very very privileged I am very delighted to have the opportunity to introduce our speaker for the day Professor Richard Pulpa Uh, and I must tell you that if I were to give a proper uh, citation a proper presentation uh, that um, fully reflects what a scholar of this stature deserves, there would be
1: no time left over for this.
0: <laughs> So I'm going to give you a very brief a very introduction so that you may know the man a little bit better than you may already do. He holds the position of distinguished professor of sociology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York at the present time. He is a man of very formidable stature in the field of sociology. He has done very, very important and influential research over the years, not only in the United States, but his research has been carried out in France and Germany. Uh, He's been the recipient of a great deal of uh, fellowship support, Fulbright, Guggenheim, German Marshall Fund, and the Russell Sage Foundation. Uh, I think Professor Alba represents the most formidable scholar that we have yet presented in our series here. He is the author of uh, several very, very important and enduring books. Uh, I have my own favorite here, this slim little volume, which is unfortunately out of print now, 1985, Italian Americans into the Twilight of Ethnicity. That is a book that I treasure. If you write a look at my copy of it, you'll see lots of notes like this. Very, very seminal, very influential, very important uh, work. All of his work is important in this way. Professor Alba has also uh, served his profession very well. He has been the president of the Eastern Sociological Society. He has been the vice president of the American Sociological Society. Enough, Giuliani, enough. Uh, I, I do have to leave time for him. But um, I want to um, share with you something that comes from the very first time that I met Professor Alba uh, was at a conference in the early 1990s. We were just trying to decide here whether it was in 1990, in 1990, 1992, at New York University, in which he made a principal presentation. And I was one of several commentators on his presentation. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read to you two brief paragraphs of what I said on that occasion that was later published in the Proceedings from the volume that will kind of set, uh, I think, set him and his presentation today into a better context. Since his earliest work, Richard Alba has consistently provided rather provocative insights into the condition of Italian-Americans. In his present effort, the paper we just presented at this conference, Alba continues to be a stimulating social analyst In particular, Alba provides a somewhat disturbing interpretation to many of our colleagues in Italian-American studies because he presents an impressive body of empirical data to document something that many other observers would prefer not to see. Years ago, Edward P. Hutchinson of the University of Pennsylvania, the individual who launched me on my way as a student of ethnic life in America, issued his warning. That the manner in which we study immigration is often a projection of our own personal values and preferences. This admonition was an early version of a parallel proposition being made at this, about the same time by Milton M. Gordon in his influential book, Assimilation in American Life, that scholarly perspectives on assimilation were often converted into ideologies about group life and problems in the United States and vice versa. In fact, among many students of Italian-American life, particularly the increasing number who are themselves members of that ethnic population, one may sometimes detect a strong sense of this type of ideology and mythology. In brief, it consists of a strong conviction that ethnicity in terms of personal identity, distinctive values and behavior, social relations and communal solidarity Remains a strong determinant of contemporary life. For those who hold such views, Alba's conclusions are indeed the most troublesome. And, uh, here's a person who put together a tremendous body of empirical data that was illuminated uh, by very incisive analysis and expressed in very lucid language that left us with such key and important ideas as. Twilight of ethnicity, something that many of us didn't want to hear was happening. Okay? I don't think that this completes the story of the Italian American experience, that we can forget about it entirely, and that's why we have them here today to talk about where do we go from here and what use can we make of what we have put into place up until this point. So, with that, uh, I am delighted to present a uh, uh, wonderful colleague and friend, Professor Richard Alba, to
2: make his own case. Well, uh, Professor Giuliani, thank you indeed for that very warm and generous uh, introduction. And I hope I'm going to live up to it. Um, and Because I entirely agree with you that um, the study of ethnicity is fraught with with, with personal identities and, and conflicts, and yet the study of past ethnicity has something really important to tell us about the possibilities for the future, and that's really my subject for today. I am very grateful to, uh, to Rich Giuliani for facilitating um, my participation Um, in the uh, Manila lecture, and to uh, Regina, Duffy, and others for um, making it possible for me to be here. This is my first visit to the Villanova campus, and I want to tell you how impressed I am visually with uh, with the campus. Um, I have to say, though, as a sometimes sports fan, um, I'm sort of glad to be on the campus where um, in in past decades, Raleigh Massimimo, you know, uh, that she brought uh, an NCAA championship into being by making sure that his players ate enough pasta. You know, I think there's something to be said for that. Okay. Um, Why do Italian Americans matter? Well, that's of course the subject of the talk, but what I wanna underscore here is that Um, My concern today will not be so much with data, though you will see data, but it will be really with narrative. How do we understand the changes that took place among Italian-Americans, and what does our understanding of those changes tell us about what potentially could happen in the future of American society with regard to the contemporary immigrant streams, which are not at all coming from Italy or um, even from Europe. So let me start with a little bit of a review about contemporary immigration and then go back and do quickly look at the Italian American story and try to draw some conclusions from it that might still have validity today. So um, as you know, um, we are in another era of mass um, immigration. Um, The number of legal immigrants coming to the United States is approximately one million per year. The the bulk of these immigrants come from outside of Europe, as I said, especially from Asia, uh, Latin America, um, and uh, the Caribbean. As a consequence of the renewed immigration, which really began in the late 1960s um, and was inaugurated by a changed immigration law, which I'll briefly talk about in a minute. Um, as a consequence, the population share of immigrants and their children um, is rising, and the share of the foreign born in the American population is beginning to approach um, the high water marks um, that it reached in the early part of the 20th century and the latter part of the 19th century when Italians, along with Irish Germans and others, made up the bulk of the immigration stream. So here's a little data. Um, The blue line shows you the total numbers of of foreign-born in the United States in millions. Um, You can see, actually, it doesn't go past 2005 in this chart. But today, there are roughly 40 million immigrants living in the United States in a country of slightly more than 300 million people. 40 million is a lot. In fact, it is by far the largest number of any country in the world. So in a very real sense, the United States remains a mecca for immigrants from all over the globe. In the um, previous era of great migration, Um, the percent of the foreign-born in the US population at several moments approached 15% of the population. Um, The last time that happened was um, in 1910, and 1910 was just about the high point of Italian immigration. Italians came in the greatest numbers to the United States between the years 1900 and 1914. Roughly three million people came from Italy in just those 15 years. Um, you can see that today the percent of the foreign born in the US population um, is about is between 12 and uh, 13%. Um, so it's not far then from the high point, and it's and it's well above its, its low point in the 20th century, which was reached in 1970. Today, about one in four residents of the United States is either an immigrant or the child of an immigrant. Um, uh, the, the child group we often call this the second generation. Well, um, the United States, like actually all wealthy Western countries, stands at a watershed moment in its history. Literally, the face of the West is changing as a consequence of large-scale post-World War II immigration from countries that lie outside of the European um, and European descent um, orbit. So, like other countries, the U.S. is facing, um, in the next 25 years, a major transition in its population, especially in its working age population. So in 25 years, the working age population will be far more diverse um, than it is today. And it will also contain noticeably fewer Americans of European descent, let me call them whites as a shorthand, than um, it does today. So there are two forces operating in conjunction that are going to bring this outcome about. On the one hand, in the US, by the way, like all, again, all other Western countries, there is a very large group of whites born in the United States who are now in their, late, from in their late 40s to their early 60s. They're part of the group that we call the baby boom. The baby boom group, it was born in the two decades following World War II in the United States between 1946 and 1964. In some European countries it went on for a bit longer. It was actually delayed um, because of the wartime destruction. Um, But in any event, over the next 25 years, these individuals are going to leave the working force. They're going to leave various positions of leadership um, in the civil society. um, And others are going to replace them. Who's going to replace them? if we look at younger groups of people in the United States, we see that those groups are A, contain fewer whites than the baby boom group, and more people of minority backgrounds, especially recent immigrant backgrounds. You can sort of see this, um, these are called population pyramids. They're a way that demographers have of showing the age, sex, structure of a population, but by looking at them we can read the history of that population and we can also project forward what that population may look like, at least if we don't project too far forward. Um, Just out of interest, in fact, I've included a projection here. This is the official U.S. Census Bureau projection uh, for the United States. You've probably heard a lot in, in your classes and in the media about how the population is going to look in 2050. Well, that to me is kind of far down the road. So I've just gone out about 25 years 20, to 2035. That Then the assumptions behind the projection, which often turn out to be wrong, are probably not going to be so wrong that they will grossly falsify what we see. I've divided the population between um, the the, the ethnic majority, um, native-born whites, and everybody else. Um, The whites are indicated in blue. The red indicates everybody else. And you can see here these very long bars that are blue, that's the baby boom group. Notice how large are the bars for whites. If you just drop a line, from the furthest blue bar in the baby boom group, you'll see that there are no other blue bars that come come anywhere near that. In other words, the majority population is shrinking and it will continue to shrink. At the same time that the population coming from recent immigrant backgrounds is growing. Um, And so when we look at the youngest Americans, individuals who are under the age of five, the vast majority born in the United States, what we find is that this group is almost evenly divided between the people we call whites and everybody else. So there's a huge change that's taking place. And it represents a major challenge for the society. We could define this challenge in terms of integration where integration here means that individuals coming from minority backgrounds are being prepared to function in the workforce, in the polity, in civil society, in ways that are on a par with individuals of majority background. In other words, the mainstream, whites. Um, and given the changes that I've already in, outlined here that are taking place in our population, I think it's a defensible proposition that if this integration fails, then in some sense the vitality of the society is in, in question. Because as the baby boomers retire, a large part of the highly educated highly skilled group of working age Americans will be leaving the workforce. And so, preparing others to replace them, where the others will have to include people from recent immigrant backgrounds, is really a, an issue of great consequence for um, this society. Um, I hope you can see this better than I can see it on the screen, but well, I'll tell you what it says anyway. So, just as a kind of To give you a sense of the magnitude of this challenge, um, I am comparing here the educational attainments in um, in recent years of young US-born Mexicans on the one hand. Mexicans are by far the largest immigrant group in the United States compared to their peers among whites. Um, And in the upper part of the bars, it's a kind of purple shade, Um, that represents college degrees, BAs and higher. Um, On the left hand, there are two sets of bars, one for men, one for women. On the left hand side we have whites, on the right hand side in each set we have Mexicans. What you can see is that the percentage of whites getting college educations is quite a bit higher really more than two times higher, Um, the equivalent percentage among US-born Mexicans. We're not talking here about immigrants. We're talking about individuals, young young adults, who were born in the United States, educated in the United States, but who clearly lag behind the mainstream population in terms of education. They also have higher dropout rates, where dropout now refers to leaving school without a high school diploma. The figures would be very similar, by the way, if we simply took all Hispanics instead of simply Mexicans. They would also be very similar if we compared whites with Americans, with black Americans. So in other words, leaving aside Asians who have very high educational attainment, but the heart, the core, the bulk of the non-white population in the United States lags behind Strong led substantially behind whites when it comes to um, education. Well, what about Italians? How do we get Italians into this story? Well, I mean, now I'm going to I'm going to point out that despite some of the stereotypes that still linger about Italians, in fact, they are very much a part of the mainstream when it comes to education. Uh, the same would be true when it comes to occupation, with re- residential location, with income, etc. In fact, they're doing better today than the average white person is doing when it comes to education. So these, again, these come from very recent data. I'm looking at, at young adults. These are people between the ages of 25 and 34. I choose them because They've completed school, but their experiences are recent enough in school that we can make a judgment about you know, how, what are the educational life chances of members of this group today versus members of another group. I've added another category here because when we look within whites, it makes sense not just to look at getting a baccalaureate, but going beyond the baccalaureate to get some kind of typically professional education. The light blue bars, um, parts of the bars, represent um, going beyond the baccalaureate. The purple again is the baccalaureate. Again, there are two sets of bars, one for men, one for women. Um, Italians are on the left, all other whites are on the right. And what you see is that both for men and for women, Italian Americans are actually achieving higher levels of education, including higher levels of university education, of post-baccalaureate education, than are the remaining whites. Particularly remarkable is the story of Italian-American women. Now, in general it's true today that women outpace men in educational attainment. That's been true for a decade and a half, at least, and the The margins of difference are not trivial, so we have to ask what's happening to these guys. But in any event, in this young adult group of Italian-Americans, half of the women have either a BA or some form of post-baccalaureate degree. That's remarkable when you consider the educational history of Italian-Americans as well as the some of the stereotypes about italian americans and i'll talk about the stereotypes um, at the end the italian american educational situation was certainly not always this way Um, if we went back a century the group that would probably be identified as the problem group with respect to education wouldn't be latino or African-American, it would be Italians. Um, And during the first half of the century, of the 20th century, an extensive literature documents that Italian-American kids growing up as the second generation in immigrant homes were regarded, at least in the cities of the North, as a major problem by educators. Their families pulled them out of school frequently as as early as they could to send them to work. Um, These were kids who had high rates of truancy, high rates of high school dropout, low rates of or low levels of overall um, educational attainment. One of the most famous doctoral dissertations ever written in the field of Italian-American studies was written by an educator named Leonard Cavello, who wrote about the Italian-American kids in the New York City high schools of the 1930s and 1940s and, and it was, a, it was a, an attempt on his part to document and to understand why Italian American kids lagged behind their peers um, in terms of education. When we get to the end of the Second World War, the picture of Italians as sort of somehow stuck educationally and stuck in terms of um, their mobility um, didn't end but was really kind of um, cemented in place, you might say, by some of the major sociological studies that were carried out in that period. The most famous of these, still famous today, um, is a book by, um, uh, you know, an eminent sociologist Herbert Ganz. It's called The Urban Villagers and it's a study of Italians living in a neighborhood of Boston. And his characterization, I mean, the the title gives it away, his characterization of this group was that in some sense they were still hampered by a kind of um, a mentality that they had brought with them principally from Southern Italy um, that um, confined them and made made them and their children less willing to pursue education Um, and to pursue mobility. Well, if we look, uh, actually, uh, an argument that I've long made is that these, uh, Gans and others who wrote about Italians in the post-World War II period kind of missed the real storyline, which was that very quietly, there was in fact a great deal of mobility taking place, and it was taking place by uh, principally through rising levels of educational um, attainment. And so if sort of we look at how the education of Italian Americans, second generation Italian Americans compared to that of a core group of white Americans, people of British ancestry, we can see a closing of the gap that took, and I'll, I'll sort of explain that in detail in a moment in this chart, that took place for the those Italian-Americans who grew up after the war. So uh, here what we have are what demographers call birth cohorts. So we're looking at groups who are defined by the year in which they were born, which of course also defines the years in which they go to school, You know, the likely years in which they complete schooling. So it's a kind of historical record then. Um, and what we can see looking at this historical record is overall change for everyone in educational levels. The British American kids got more education over time, but the Italians who lagged behind in the beginning really caught up by the end of the period, which is people who were born in the early 1950s. So we're going here from kids who were born in between 1910 and 19. 19- 14, to kids who were born 1951 to 1955. And, and the left-hand side, for example, if you compare the dark brown, which is really the upper bar, to the green line, that compares boys. British, the, the, the higher line. Italian, the green line. If you look at the left-hand side, you, it's obvious. There's, there's quite a gap. But by the end, the gap has been closed. Now, you might wonder, what is this big leap in the British line for the kids who were born in 1946 to 1950? That's the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War, because of the draft provisions, which allowed young men who were in higher education to postpone uh, the draft, led many to stay in school who might not otherwise have stayed in school, so that's that's the explanation of that. You can see that the Italian American women also caught up in this period, so the kind of um, beige line, I'm sorry it's not a little clearer, the colors come out differently in the end than I intended them to, compared to the orange line. The beige line is British women, The, the orange line is Italian American women, Again, on the left, you can see there's quite a sizable gap, and gradually it closes, and it's closed in that last cohort of people born in the early 1950s who would have been coming out of college in the early 1970s. So we're talking about really a quarter of a century, the period 46 to 70, when a lot took place and when a gap that had been very large in the beginning, really, at least in in these quantitative terms, um, disappeared by by the end of that period. So that brings us to a consideration of kind of what were the nature of the barriers in the mainstream society to Italian American social Ascent, And it's there, I, I believe, that we can really gain some lessons that can be applied to the present when we also have major barriers that confront groups like the Mexicans in terms of integration into the mainstream society. Now it's terrific to come here when the exhibit in the back is about the attacks on Catholic institutions in the middle of the 19th century because that's a story that's extremely relevant to my story, even though there weren't too many Italians here um, in the middle of the 19th century. But the the kind of key storyline is this, that Italians were excluded from membership in the mainstream up through the middle of the 20th century by a combination of religion, ethnicity, and even to some extent racial factors. So the role of religion in American society as a a division between groups of people was very powerful until the really the post-World War II period. It's exemplified by the Kensington exhibit in the back. But even when we get to the 20th century, um, it's very clear that religion had a powerful role. The Ku Klux Klan, which is of course famous as a racist organization, had a second, a so-called second life in northern cities in the early 1920s. Its targets were not black so much as they were new immigrants, especially those of Catholic um, and Jewish um, religions. The 1928 election, um, which is rarely talked about, but was really in some ways a very, a certainly symbolically important election, um, for the first time featured a Catholic candidate nominated for president by a major party, namely Al Smith, um, running on the Democratic ticket. Um, and during that election, um, there was widespread preaching from Protestant pulpits and widespread organization among white Protestants to deny Smith the presidency and in fact he lost by a very large margin, one of the largest margins ever um, in presidential history. I can't help but tell a small story that reveals the sometimes comical character of the objections to Smith. So one of the incidents that took place during the campaign was the dissemination of a picture in the South, which in reality showed Smith cutting a ribbon on a New York City subway tunnel, but carried um, the legend that um, it showed Smith cutting a ribbon on a secret tunnel to the Vatican through which the Pope would enter the United States after Smith's victory. Um, This didn't help him, I guess. Um, the role of race uh, is, is, again, often forgotten, not by, so much by scholars, but I think in the lay understanding of these events. But it was there. I mean, there was something racial to the um, derision um, that, um, that white Protestants felt toward Italians and others. Um, for the Italians, uh, to me, it's betrayed by the common slur word when I was growing up, the word Guinea, um, which is a word which was applied to Italians and was a word that came out of the history of American slavery um, and basically is derived from the African coast. So it was definitely a way of saying, you know, these people really aren't um, white. There was also. Uh, scientific racism at the time. Um, The the first use of the IQ test came uh, an application to the new immigrants and their children, um, and was used to prove their intellectual inferiority, Um, and of course these groups then were targeted by the immigration legislation of the 1920s, intended to restrict immigration, which established Nationality quotas—that was the system—the numbers of people who could come each year from a given from each country—and those quotas were set low for the countries of Southern and Eastern um, Europe. Well, as I said, um, the period of the forty-five to seventy was really a period of transition, um, a period when um, the Gulf. Educational and social that separated Italians and other groups from the white Protestant mainstream um, was was filled in. And how, how did that, you know, what's what's what sorts of, uh, what was the situation after that gulf was filled in? Well, um, as I pointed out, the um, ethnics caught up in socioeconomic terms to the mainstream. And in the Italian case, the ev- one piece of evidence is that the Italians erased the education gap that separated them from the mainstream. Um, marriage across ethnic and then religious lines increased sharply. That was true for Italians. Um, also true, and maybe this is the acid test for Jews, who in the early post-World War II period had an intermarriage rate of under 10%, and by the 1980s, three decades after that period, um, had an intermarriage rate of 50%. Uh, um, the ethnics, the, the, the sort of perception that these ethnics were, weren't really white, was ended in this period. Um, and their religions really became a part of the mainstream. So the assimilation that took place didn't mean that Catholics and Jews became Protestant, it meant that their religions were included in the mainstream. We became, instead of a white Christian nation, meaning a white Protestant nation, which we had been in the early 20th century, we became a Judeo-Christian nation. Um, and the distinctions now made among the three major religions became much more minor in consequence than they had been in the earlier part of the century. Well this leaves us with a puzzle um, and, um, and, the, and, and I'm not going to go through all the points here because I think I'm taking up more time than I imagined I would so sort of i the puzzle is simple enough to say. Mostly when sociologists analyze situations of inequality, what they find is that groups that are advantaged by their situation strive to hold on to their advantages. And often the story is one of the difficulties of addressing inequality because reforms are often thwarted in one way or another by the privileged group that finds other mechanisms by which to keep, to preserve its superior position. Catholics and Jews were, these were huge groups, you know, especially the Catholics. Why, you know, so the question becomes, why would white Protestants have accepted them into the mainstream in the first place? There was no real advantage for them. The the way the post-World War II changes worked out could have it. things could have turned out differently. It could have been as many people at the time imagined that we would have in the north of the United States a three-tier system with non-whites on the bottom, white Protestants on top, and white Catholics like Italians in between. That was the Gans vision, by the way, in the Urban Villagers, was the Italians were going to be a stable, working class. They would be prosperous enough so as to distinguish themselves from minorities, principally black Americans, but they were not going to be in a position to challenge at least the elite white Protestants who presumably would hold on to positions of leadership in the society as a whole. It didn't work out that way. And it's worth thinking about why did it not work out that way? Well, I'm going to argue that when we look carefully at the changes that took place, we can see that there were sort of three things that happened, sort of simultaneously. Their conjunction really eroded the boundaries between the, the white Protestant mainstream and these other groups, including um, Italians. So one of those uh, was what I'm going to call non-zero-sum mobility. That means that lower groups can move up without appearing to threaten the position of already established groups. Consider what happened in higher education in the 45 to 70 period as an example of this, and we've already noted how Italians really caught up. I mean, they, they, their, their rate of college going rose very steeply um, for the, for the young people who came of age in that post-World War II period. This was a period when the society invested in institutions of education and the result was that the number of young people going to college expanded by a factor of five between 1940 and 1970. That's an enormous expansion. It was made possible in part, it started with the GI Bill, but it didn't end with the GI Bill. Um, By 1970, more than 30% of young people of college age were in college. In 1940, under 10% of young people of college age were in college. That change made a huge difference for the opportunity to go to college. In a world where under 10% went to college, you either had to come from a privileged family or you had to really be smart to go to college. In a world where 30% went to college, many, many more people could go. Um, And so the consequence was an expansion that allowed other groups to move up. Now, in addition to this mobility upward that was unleashed by the changes in the system, there was also spatial mobility in this period, which had the consequence of bringing groups into contact that had not really been in much contact before. The suburbs arose, and many young white families moved to the suburbs in the in the quarter century following the end of World War II. And the suburbs like Levittowns, mixed together white families from different ethnic and religious backgrounds. And of course, their kids went to school, the kids became friends, the parents sometimes became friends, so it really shifted the social relations. Finally, there was a cultural change, which is at least worth noting in passing, and that is the war gave rise to a different understanding of American society. And the people in it, and this is very clear if you compare the wartime novels and films against the pre-war novels and films. Um, and the war was a huge subject for people who were writing novels and making films. So from Here to Eternity, The Naked and the Dead, um, you know, a Walk in the Sun, A Bell for Adano. These are all famous films and books. Um, and what they did was to depict. A, um, an American military that was successfully prosecuting the war that was truly for whites uh, a melting pot in miniature. Minnesota. So there was a kind of almost a stock set of characters, the Jew from the Bronx, the Italian from Brooklyn, the Swede from Minnesota, you know, and all of these guys would be in the same foxhole together working together, not necessarily without conflict, but still working together um, for the sake of wartime victory. Okay, um, well, I've already covered a lot that's on, on this slide, but there's one thing I want to point out, and that is that in the post World War II period, and I, I recognize that I'm standing here, uh, you know, at the dais of a, a private university, but most of the growth that I've referred to, the great expansion, took place in the public system, so it meant that there was public investment by state and local governments and to some extent the federal government in the higher educational system. This opened it up, made it possible for new groups like the Italians to enter in large numbers. I think it's not irrelevant um, to consider that in many of the states with large Italian American populations like New York or Rhode Island the 40s and the 50s were the, were the period where Italian American politicians had their first significant successes. So they and other ethnics were becoming the decision makers who would make the decisions to found a State University of New York, for example, which was founded in 1948, and to expand that university system from 30,000 students, which the number it had in 1948, to 300,000 students, the number that it had in 1970. So this political success then, and these public policy decisions went hand in hand, but they had a momentous impact on the inequalities that had previously ruled um, in American Uh, society. So where are we today? Well, first of all, the the demographic changes that I alluded to earlier on in the lecture, the transition to a far more diverse society, does hold the promise of some non-zero-sum mobility. Because the group in our society, that has been most privileged in the sense of most able to take for granted the opportunities to go to college, to get a good job, to live in a good neighborhood has been the group of whites, people of European descent. That is the ma- you know, that is the mainstream group of our society at the, in the early 21st century. That group is shrinking and its numbers among young people, are smaller, literally smaller, than its numbers in middle-aged groups. So as we move forward, there will be fewer whites entering the labor force than are leaving it. And that opens up room for other groups then to rise um, within um, our system. Now it doesn't mean that the non-zero-sum mobility that we're going to see is on the same order as that which we saw in the post-World War II period, which was truly remarkable. I mean, that was truly an extraordinary period of prosperity um, and opportunity. And it's not surprising that for many Americans that still represents the reference point, for older Americans like me, it represents the reference point by which we evaluate often Um, uh, the present, but nevertheless it's a significant chance. The question is how well will we be able to take advantage of it? Um, And there are at least two really negative factors that I have to be honest and note. One is that the present is a period of far greater economic inequality than was the, world, the, world War, the post-World War II period. The post-World War II period is known by economic historians as the period of the Great Compression or the Great Contraction because it represented a low point of economic inequality in American society. When one looks at the extent of income inequality or one looks at the extent of wealth inequality, these were lower in the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s than they had been in the earlier part of the 20th century or than they are today. Um, and of course, that decline in size meant that people on some very important economic dimension were more equal. It wasn't as hard uh, to move up in a society where the economic ladder has been trimmed. And today, of course, Um, maybe you've been made aware by what you read, by um, what you've heard in the classroom, that we have a level of inequality that is A, considerably higher than that in pretty much all of the other um, economically developed countries, and B, rivals that of the so-called gilded age um, in the beginning of the 20th century. So the gap between people on the bottom and people in the, let's call it the upper middle class, has really increased today over what it was in this earlier period. I would argue that the educational system has also changed in ways that are not as favorable to the mobility of um, low status groups as the educational system was, at least in northern cities, in the middle of the 20th century. To begin with, our system of school financing allows for much greater inequality in school resources um, as we go from one, kind of, from one school to another than is true another, again, advanced economies. Um, because we fund schools based on a combination of local and state taxes. Many other systems fund schools based on national Um, budgets as opposed to uh, local and state um, budgets. And we know from many, many studies of our school system that A, schools are segregated by race, ethnicity, as well as socioeconomic status, and that B, the resources of schools correlate with the social origins of the young people that they teach. So the schools that teach people from minority backgrounds and from from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds tend to have fewer resources than do the schools that teach kids coming from more affluent um, circumstances. The other thing that that maybe hasn't gotten as much attention as it deserves is um, that there's been a decline in what we could call teacher quality. Um, in the middle of the twentieth century, teachers were recruited from college-educated women. That was a relatively small group until college uh, going expanded. It was a it was a group that captured people f- who were either very smart or coming from relatively affluent circumstances. And those young women didn't have many opportunities. So the studies showed many of them wanted to become teachers. Um, now, of course, women rightfully have many more opportunities, um, but um, and so the pe- the young men and women who go into teaching turns out come n- from not such an academically strong group as was the case in the middle of the twentieth century. Basically, what one could say is the way we compensate teachers through status as well as um, economically has not not kept pace with our need to recruit highly qualified teachers, people who have high levels of academic skill. And there are many studies that show that the intellectual quality of the teacher makes a difference for how much um, young people learn. So we really need to upgrade teaching in order to improve our educational system. And by the way, the studies of the highest achieving educational systems like that in Finland all reveal um, a fairly high status for um, teachers. Okay, so, so much for the new immigrants. Let me come back to Italians. And so one of the things that may bother some, some people as I discuss the inclusion of Italians into the mainstream is the continuing stereotyping of Italian Americans. And I just, I wanna briefly um, address that, if I may, within my closing remarks. So it is remarkable that when we look at the mass media depictions of Italians, that they are so cluttered um, with stereotypes. Stereotypes, by the way, that have had a very long life that you can trace back um, into the, to the early days of the mass immigration of Italians. So on the one hand, we have um, the stereotype of the working class person with limited horizons um, who isn't gonna rise very far in life, but maybe a kind of real, kind of, um, you know, likable person, like the hero of Saturday Night Fever, Tony Manella, or the, the young people, maybe they're not so likable, but the young people who one sees on Jersey shores and who adopt the Guido ideal um, for themselves. Another stereotype um, that's still alive is of Italian Americans as, uh, as especially racist individuals who are competitive in many respects with African Americans. The films of Spike Lee are particularly Um, kind of, you know, repositories of this, of this particular uh, stereotype, like do the right thing with the racist pizza owner Sal and his uh, son. And finally, you know, still, um, there's the organized crime stereotype, which hasn't disappeared entirely, even though Italian American organized crime has virtually disappeared, but you know, The Sopranos was clearly a case where um, you know, the traded in some sense on the organized crime stereotype, presenting Tony and his ilk as, a, as a kind of suburbanized versions of people, of kind of, of thugs who used to live um, in cities. Running throughout this, I would argue, is a, the- a consistent theme that has to do with um, what are seen as the peasant origins of especially the southern Italians, the great bulk, of the immigrants who came from Italy um, to to the United States. And it's in the contrast between street smarts and intellectual acumen, the ability to reason, uh, to think abstractly. And it's not that Italians are viewed as unintelligent, but it's that their intelligence is given a particular twist. They have street smarts. They are the salt of the earth. You know, they are again, the kind of, um, likable, in some ways admirable, um, kind of working class characters who, you know, who make neighborhoods worth living in, but they lack that kind of extra um, element in, the, in this stereotype, I'm, I'm not saying in reality, in this stereotype of a kind of intellectual, uh, an ability to, to reason on a very, on a very intellectual plane and to succeed academically. Um, at high levels. You know, we've seen, at least in the data, that doesn't seem to be true anymore, but these are the continuing stereotypes. Well, I think the conclusion I draw is that stereotypes have a life that can be independent of the social reality that they originally derived from. There was a time when the stereotypes at least were in greater agreement with the social lives of Italian Americans than is true today. Um, this, I think, you know, this life of stereotypes though says something about what the new immigrant groups also can expect in future decades because even if they achieve in the way that Italians have achieved and they enter in large numbers into Um, the mainstream, there will probably still be stereotypes about them because stereotypes are a way that, um, ethnic stereotypes, that Americans think about inequality in their society. Stereotypes like the, the ones about the Italians are ways of justifying the unequal position of groups on the basis of whether or not they have the right stuff to make it in the kind of society um, that the United States is. This note in closing, but stereotypes can change. And um, well, this isn't terribly clear given the light in the room, but it's a mid 19th century drawing by the famous cartoonist Thomas Nast of the Irish celebrating St. Patrick's Day um, right after the closing of the American Civil War and if you look closely, what you will see is that the Italians, uh, the Irish are drawn here with ape-like features. This was a, the Simian depiction of the Celt was very common in the 19th century. It actually uh, came in, from, from Great Britain, where there were you know, very uh, vital, uh, vivid, I, must, I should say, vivid, racist stereotypes about the Irish in the 19th century. But this stereotype, which had such a life on American and British shores in the 19th century is lost to us today. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that this says St. Patrick's Day somewhere there, um, probably many people wouldn't be able to figure out who was being depicted. So stereotypes can change, and it's my hope that given the enormous success that Italian-Americans have enjoyed since the end of World War II, that eventually we'll be able to say goodbye to, um, to the situation and his friends. Okay, I'll close on that note. I'd be happy to take questions. To questions. Yes, right, or com- or take comments for that matter. Yes, sir. Thank you very
1: much, Matt. Um I, I study the Italian language and culture here as my particular area to study, And my, my question is in relation to the language as part of the social integration. they spoke about as comparing the Italians to Mexicans and to other whites. What what is the difference between the infusion of the Spanish language and the, as as part of the Mexican culture in relation to in comparison to Europe, the oh, Italian that's very, language. That's an excellent question. As not being infused in, whereas, yeah. you know, today mo- most people of my age are bilingual in Spanish and English and not as I am in an Italian and English. So, what? where are they bilingual?
2: A the trilingual?
1: No, just just the Italian and Just Italian, yeah.
2: Okay. Just out of curiosity. Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't say that most people are bilingual. And, um, you know, I think uh, from the European European immigrations came a generalization about language change that certainly seems to apply to Italians, and it's a three it's a, it's a three generation linguistic shift. So, the first generation are the immigrants, and they speak the mother tongue. The second generation grows up in mother tongue speaking households; they understand the mother tongue, but often prefer not to speak it. And the third generation, are uh, you probably your third or fourth? I'm not your first. Oh, you're first? Okay, all right. All right, so therefore you don't actually. Yeah. You're not an exception yeah. to this. Okay, so the third generation then um, grows up in an English speaking household with only fragmentary knowledge at best of the mother tongue. Um, and I uh, mean, the data for Italian spoken at home <coughs> in the United States seems very consistent with that generalization because very few people of Italian ancestry in the United States today speak Italian at home. Yeah. I didn't yeah. <coughs> yeah. Now, so the question is how much of a departure are Spanish speakers going to be from this model? Do they com- do we have to throw it out the window or is it that we have to make an exception perhaps for a part of the group and um, what I what uh, by the way this the same model can be fit to Asian groups in fact they may even they may adapt to English more quickly than the Europeans did because there's such a high premium in their families placed on educational attainment so a lot of their families really concentrate on the young kids mastering English so that they can go to the best, univers- best high schools and best universities um, that they can. So it's rare then, you know, to meet um, young people of Chinese background who are really fluent in Chinese and certainly who are literate in Chinese because, of course, it's, it takes a great deal of extra effort to learn to read and write in Chinese. Uh, Mandarin. So anyway, so for Spanish speakers, it appears that the three generation model applies to the majority of the group, if you're willing to say that maybe the third generation has somewhat better than fragmentary knowledge. But it's clear that there's a language change that takes place across generations that is measured in media use, for example. I mean, there's studies you can uh, go to on the, on the Pew Hispanic Center research site, if you're interested, um, which show that there's marked shift in the use of media, Spanish language media, across, across the generations. On the other hand, you're right that in the later generations, there's more bilingualism than we would expect based on the European language experience. And of course, the Spanish speakers are a huge group, and um, there is a very large media infrastructure to support their language, And, and many of them are not far from the home countries of their parents, and so they can go back and forth with a regularity that was not true of early 20th century Europeans. So, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I don't think we know w- to say whether they're really going to be an, ex- you know, they overturn the model, or whether you know by, in some sense, making allowances in the model, we can kind of account for the major patterns of language adjustment. I'm just going to say, but wasn't it an Americanization policy to get rid of language? Yes, it was. So that's why you're people like us. Well, I don't know, know, disorder, well, not really okay I think, of well the, first of all the the Americanization policy was um most acute right after world war one um and you know that's when um you know many white Protestant Americans were in favor of things like one hundred percent Americanization et cetera, but the reality um is that le- schools that were bilingual, A, were fairly common in the United States in the early 20th century, and B, continued to exist even after this period of, of Americanization policy. So in the Midwest, um, and, and this is well known, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not kind of giving you anything that that a historian of this period would disagree with. In the Midwest, many of the major cities had schools that were bilingual in German and English until World War I. So, um, you know, even in the 1940 census, you can see that there are a lot of people that were German speakers as a consequence of the concentration of German speakers in various communities of the Midwest and as a result of these school systems even after world war one though there were uh, schools especially catholic schools that maintained a degree of bilingualism in new england it was common for uh, schools to teach in french and english and that lasted into the 50s Um, and there was a uh, college a french speaking college in western massachusetts in the early 1950s, um, that presumably drew its students from from the young people who are coming out of these schools. I mean, I know somebody, a friend of mine, who's about 15 years younger than I am, and went to an elite Catholic high school in Rhode Island that was bilingual in Italian and English. So, um, you know, it's not really correct to say that all of the European kids were forced. To learn English, and that's why their languages didn't survive. It's 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 just not true. It's a, it's one of these mythologies that's grown up uh, right around um, how the European American experience differs from the experience of of new immigrants and well, their children World today. II, then, we talk about World War well, one. I think after World War II, what made a difference was the perception of opportunity. It's when people perceive opportunities to get ahead and perceive certain routes of getting ahead. Like I'm going to get ahead if I look more, quote, American than my parents do. That's when people feel real motivation to kind of change in ways that we call assimilation and that help them then to fit into the mainstream. So. Well, I think that a lot, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people, um, would have sort of thought, well, I don't need another language. What I need, what I need is English. I don't need to have this funny-sounding name, you know. I'm going to change my name, which, of course, many Jews did, in in that period, Uh, you know. So, I mean, there were not only name changes. There was a lot of cosmetic surgery in the post-World War II period to help people fit in better. To you know the the sort of the norms about appearance, um, and about behavior. Yes.
1: This kind of relates to a lot of things you've been saying. Several years ago, I organized uh, a session of the American Historical Association. The general topic being the decline of German American. Yes. Country. Yes. Yeah. Which. Uh, uh, you know, kind of, we turned over a lot of things in this session, and one of the things pointed out was that they have a very long history, and all during that history, yeah. people have been coming in as immigrants to the German American community. Yeah, to right. It. Yes, and they've also been leaving. You know, so this yes, it's, it's been renewed and refreshed, <laughs> and it appears that outsiders look like a very strong ethnic structure. Uh, today? No, no, I mean, no, was yeah. here looking at, at, at that era.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. It did appear to be a very strong and, structure. Uh, yeah.
1: And, and then suddenly this appeared when, long about in 1890, immigration of Germans dropped off a lot, and yet they still kept leaving the same era. And you notice all sorts of things like. Uh, uh, German-American organizations pleading for new members, yeah, and yeah, combining, yeah, yeah. and the German press declining. You know, once a bunch of very big press. And,
2: uh, it was it was dominated the foreign language press in the United oh, yeah, States and around nineteen. By far the largest yes. foreign
1: language press, but that declined very rapidly. But one of the things in this process of well, and why are people leaving? and eventually maybe really not defining themselves as german Americans anymore, which I think is your thing, when, when they are uh, no longer defining themselves as Italian-Americans. Uh, you know, then that, that's about it as far as ethnic identity. Yeah,
2: well, well I, yeah, I would say that, um, you know, my reading of ethnic identities is that, um, Americans in the latter part of the 20th century grew very comfortable with a kind of modest amount of ethnic identity. So it wasn't that people had to say they weren't Italian anymore. But what Italian meant became quite different from what it had been in the early 20th century. So you know, it was fine to like, I don't know, go to opera or something or know some Italian or be a very good cook of Italian food all of that was quite acceptable and certainly acceptable across ethnic lines so in that sense maybe the fate of German Americans was that they they had to make choices at a very harsh time during the World War I period when um, this zeal for Americanization was at its height when the suspicion of a kind of you know of, of foreigners outsiders was also at its height as you know I mean they suffered from laws that were that targeted them, that targeted their language. But you make an interesting point about even in the height of their, of their strength, there, was, there were people leaving. And I think the same is true for Hispanics today. You know That is to say that Hispanics look like a huge population, but one has to remember that there's a very, very large immigrant presence in that population. Um, And there are enormous inflows every year because of the large volume of immigration coming from Latin America. And so the inflows in part are compensating for people who are leaving the community and kind of, you know, intermarrying, kind of moving away from concentrations of Mexicans or Dominicans.
1: I think the language, as you were saying, does play a role in that too, because in the the German situation, uh, in the early 20th century, it's a matter of opportunities, which you talked about. In a given city, say, uh, a young German-American could look around and find rather few jobs within the German community, because it's kind of shrinking. Yes. And uh, at the same time, they can get a good job downtown. This is a very sociological analysis. Yeah, yeah, he's a
2: sociologist.
1: You know, and so there's, yes. you know, yeah. who needs the language? And, right. and you know, no, i was going to right. speak English. That's Because right. that's a marketable skill. Yeah, And, uh, and, and this kind of, well, this, as far as I can see, is a when somebody says, I, I don't need to be Italian-American. Right. I don't really think of myself that way, and
2: that's it. Well, shall we repair for cookies? Then we can all chat informally. Great. Thank you so much for your attention. (laughs)